The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Capitalism is Grift Edition. It's Wednesday, August 8th, 2018. On today's show, Sorry to Bother You is the new movie. It's written and directed by the rapper Boots Riley. We'll be joined by Slate's own Vera Lynn Williams. She's a producer and co-host of the podcast The Waves. And then Succession is the new dramedy TV a clef about a very Murdoch-like family's struggle over control of the media empire started by their patriarch father. It's on HBO. And finally, what is it about scamming and grifting that they have risen to the fore in 2018? Joined by Laura Bennett, who is Features Director of Slate.com. Hey, Laura, welcome back to the show. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You're a succession completist. Uh, am I ever. I have watched uh, every minute of the show currently available, and I think I've read every article ever uh, written about it. <laughs> <laughs> well... We're uh, we're tickled to have you here um, to talk that and uh, other subjects. And of course, uh, we're joined by Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic. Hey, hey, Dana. Hello, Stephen. Boots Riley is the frontman for the Oakland hip hop group The Coop. Sorry to bother you is Riley's directorial debut. He also wrote the film. It's a pointed and twisty satire on hyper capitalism and the place of black aspirants within it. Cassius Green, played by Lakeith Stanfield, only begins to rise in his telemarketing firm when he begins to quote unquote talk white. White voice isn't just constricted and bland. It's carefree in a very specific way that non-white people don't get to be. Being white is a kind of conspiracy among those not not white, not burdened by doubt, debt, the specter of violence and expropriation, that it expands from there to a general critique of capitalism as something destroying all of us is truly remarkable. The movie's funny, absurdist, and very, very dark. Let's listen to a clip. Hey, young blood, let me give you a tip. Use your white boys. Man, I ain't got no white voice. Oh, come on, you know what I mean. You have a white voice in there, you can use it. It's like when you pulled over by the police. Oh, no, I just use my regular voice when that happens. I just say, back the fuck up off the car, and don't nobody get out. All right, man, I'm just trying to give you some game. You want to make some money here? Then read the script with a white voice. People say I talk with a white voice anyway, so why ain't it helping me out? Well, you know talk white enough. I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. I'm talking about the real deal. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. I didn't catch you at the wrong time, did I? All right. Well, we're joined by Slate's own Verilyn Williams. Verilyn, welcome to the Back to the Show. Thank you for having me. This movie's insane. I mean, I'm just beginning with the fact that the quote-unquote white voices are clearly dubbed and the movie wants them to be clearly dubbed is just a great fucking joke uh one of a million in this film uh talk to me a little bit about it and boots riley and what'd you make of this i absolutely love this film i saw it last night i was kind of avoiding it just because everyone in my life was talking about it and you know so i finally saw it because i was coming to talk to you fine people about it and i just feel like i'm their target audience <laughs> i was the, i'm I, i'm always obsessed with the ways in which we are caricatures of ourselves even in the ways we talk about wanting to quote unquote get free or we're going to protest this or we're boycotting this person now because, you know, or Starbucks and all these different ways. But when it comes to actually inconveniencing ourselves, we don't. Um, and so I, mean, I don't know how much we want to give away in this conversation, but it just felt like everything just kept escalating and escalating and people were making decisions that maybe you were agreeing with and maybe you weren't agree with. But at the end of the day, like how like. Look who our president is, you know, like there's things that I feel like we're always for like absurd things happen. And then somehow we're supposed to have rational um, responses to absurdity. And it's like when absurd things happen, the reaction, the normal reaction is to also be absurd. Right. To also get out of character, to also, like, you know, to go in a way that isn't um isn't comfortable for other people. But often we're like socialized to have very acceptable reactions to absurdity and i mm. think like the fact that this movie just keeps ramping up is like brilliant in a way because it's just like well at what point does this not become okay yeah yeah um i should say also that the movie in addition to stanfield has i mean an amazing cast it's terry cruz danny glover Ar uh, army hammer 
Tessa Thompson, who's terrific, mesmerizing in the movie. Dana, uh, we'll get to the politics of the film further in a minute, but I'm just curious what you thought of it as a film. I mean, I, I completely agree with Verilyn that the escalation is what makes it. Um, it's it's very it's a first film. It's a very impressive debut feature because it takes a lot of risks. I think at times, maybe toward the last half hour, it takes too many in the sense that it posits like such a big dystopia, such a big um, set of alternate rules for the universe that it establishes that not every possibility gets played out. I mean, I almost wish that there had been 10 or 15 more minutes of movie at at the climax. Um, But yeah, it's not like anything else out there. And that is a high recommendation in and of itself. Uh, yeah, Farallon, it is a crazy stew. This, in addition to being absurdist through and through, it um, it kind of goes everywhere. I mean, the I thought I was going to go. See, I went and saw it last night too, and I thought I was going to see a movie that played out the original premise as a kind of you know office park drama, and it launches off of that very quickly into a bunch of different places. How did you feel that hung together? Even just, I was also very aware of, so I was, I was sitting, um, I went to the Alamo, which kind of like couples you with people. And so the person that was my couple was a black man. And then the, the other seat next to me was a white couple. So, <laughs> so I was like, I was very aware. I was like trying to pay attention to like what they were laughing at or what they weren't laughing at. And I was laughing throughout the whole movie And there were moments where I saw that the black man wasn't laughing at things that I was laughing at. And so I think it did hold together for me. But I also am very aware that, again, I feel like I'm their target audience. Because there were moments where I was like very aware that this black man was sitting next to me that maybe has had moments of feeling like, oh, the world is not you know, giving me a chance. And there's a moment where Lakeith, Cassius Clay, well, Ka- what's his name? Cassius Green, which Cassius is a pun. Green. Did you guys notice? Yes, Cassius, Cassius Green. Green. Yeah, Cassius. <laughs> <laughs> um, where he says, like, I'm good at this, right? Like, this is the thing I'm good at. And now you're telling me I need to sacrifice the job that I've gotten mm-hmm. for this cause, you know? So... I do like the, I, I think, I, I felt like the very, the, the parts where he like dropped in until like he's at this call center and there was, I think this is probably a convention, which I thought worked really well where he's talking to the people on the phone, but then he drops into where they are and the moments in which he did it before he started using his quote unquote white voice. And then once he started using it, the ways he was able to kind of fit into their world a lot better just by changing his voice, I think said a lot as well. Right. So for those who haven't seen the movie, like literally his like little call center desk physically falls into the space that he's calling into so that you have the two people face to face speaking to one another, even though we know that in, you know, IRL, they're on the phone. And that's a great to me. That was a great sort of first um, canary in the coal mine of absurdity. Right. Which continues to escalate and become more and more absurd and disturbing as the movie goes on. You know, I loved that part so much. And I think overall I had heard this movie was a fascinating, ingenious mess. And I came in prepared thinking that I would feel that about it. But I just thought it was so much less of a mess than I even Mm -hmm. anticipated. Like, yes, it has a bajillion themes and satirical targets from like anti-capitalism to the gig economy to like Silicon Valley bro culture to race relations and, you know, unions or whatever. But it's still somehow so coherent. And a lot of that, I mean, if you read interviews with Boots Riley, you see how well this movie conveys the spirit of his own radicalism. Mm-hmm. And I felt like even more than its message, its attitude was so inspiring and so coherent. Like, I feel like Detroit's statement earrings, almost, which are these huge... Detroit is the Tessa Thompson right, character's she's, name. She's yeah. the girlfriend of um, of Cash, and she's so good in this movie, Tessa Thompson. But she has these huge earrings that are that bear different statements like murder, 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 kill, kill, kill (laughs) at one point. And to me, they kind of encapsulate the exuberant conspicuousness of this movie Mm -hmm. and how it's so committed to its worldview and the total lack of subtlety and tentativeness uh, is so consistent and so, you know, intentional. And the, the, the kind of jaw dropping way this movie manages to make this hideous dystopia feel so light on its feet and joyful that is in place from minute one all the way to the end and i even weirdly liked that ending even though it was so whiplashy okay so we're not going to give away exactly what happens but there's this um kind of mind-blowing uh leveling up in the surrealism that happens you know i don't know what 70 percent of the way through the movie or whatever um 
And then the ending, we won't spoil it, but suffice it to say that the movie kind of leapfrogs from one astonishing kind of tragic and surrealist scene to a scene of empowerment in like 0.5 seconds. And the choppiness of that pacing pacing is surely in part a sign of uh, Riley's sort of greenness as a director. But to me, it worked because that way that's that sort of sequence of scenes flings like 10 different feelings at you at once. It's so disturbing, but it's also kind of shot through with this spiky, rebellious optimism. And it just felt so appropriate for the movie, which is like whiplashy and defiant in the best way the whole way through. Mm -hmm. So even though it left me like reeling, I, it worked on me. Mm. That's, mm. That was so well put that I, I want to retract. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I still yeah, found yeah. The, the ending a little bit rushed. I basically just wanted more resolution. Not that more things had to happen necessarily, but I wanted to spend longer with those mm. those characters. I agree that the tone and the attitude of the movie are completely consistent throughout, and that's what matters about this movie. Yeah. I mean, I, can, can I just say quickly what I admired most about the movie is that it's obviously at its center is a is a racial satire in which the cost of becoming successful in a you know w- white dominated society the cost of that to the psyche of a, a black man is kind of at the center of the initial part of the satire which is remarkable in itself but that then then the movie that that the movie then expands out to be a comprehensive satire of hypercapitalism and mm. how it's taking all of our humanity and swirling mm. it down the fucking toilet is um, um, it's amazing to me Verilyn, that it balances those two things yeah there was a um so the Stephen yen character who is the the, per, who the is person amazing in this amazing movie, by the way. and also you know you know, we talk all the time about the way Asian men are represented on screen and he just yep. got to be a, a like a, a person that was like just like radical union organizer and sleazy womanizer and sleazy womanizer like i can't believe i was cheering for that i was like yes i say stud but okay sleazy womanizer Uh, like yes very skeezy the way he tried to um there was a moment where he was clearly coming on to detroit who is played by tessa thompson but there was a point where he says and this might not be a verbatim quote because i kind of typed it really quickly in the theater um that um, if you get to show a problem, if you get to if you get to show a problem and no one knows how to solve the problem, then everyone gets used to the problem. And I think like that almost for me feels like a thesis statement in the film where like I remember when I first learned that our cell phones are made from that the thing that's mined in like the in the DRC or the Congo. And I remember like thinking like, oh, my God, like this is horrible. But I still have an iPhone. And so there is a feeling of like, I think we all are making allowances every single day <laughs> that we're just like, we know that it's horrible. But like when you feel like you can't do anything about it, you start to just pretend, not even pretend, but like you're like, oh, that's a really horrible thing that's happening to other people. Yeah. And the movie really shows those kind of psychic compromises that you make in a capitalist economy every day with Lakeith Stanfield as, you know, the, the person who keeps getting more and more success for doing more mm. and more morally hateful things and he's like well i'm making the money that we're fighting for yeah which i mean i feel like there's always this inside outside game right there are people that believe that you go inside and you interrupt the system from the inside and there are people like no we from we can't even participate in the system from the outside we need to like just you know like throw cans at it (laughs) which is (laughs) literally happens (laughs) which literally happens in the the movie so yeah I, i i can't I can't. I mean, this movie just made me uncomfortable in all the right places, um, but in a way that, like, I was made uncomfortable. Like, I literally put my hand over my eyes during the moment that we're not talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't <laughs> no. even. Know. I'm like, there's no so, way from there is yeah. like no way for me to like say this without spoiling anything. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I remember just being like, <laughs> like from that moment on until he was back in his apartment, my hands were like to my face uh-huh. yeah well, can i just um ask one question about the style of the movie um it it what i loved about it was you know indie film over the last 10 20 25 years has gotten to its credit in some ways incredibly sleek right and they're um you know beautifully crafted well thought out cogent you know, worked on by many hands, passed through many filters, movies now appear in multiplexes under the banner of indie cinema. But Mm -hmm. when indie cinema first started in the 70s and 80s with John Sayles and Spike Lee uh, and various other people, it was guerrilla. I mean, it it wasn't just 
romantically gorilla you you it was low budgets and you saw the creativity of working with a low budget uh on the screen and it was fucking daring and it was often somewhat cheap and incoherent but in this way that really made it feel as though it was not of a piece with the dominant trends of movie making i thought this was a throwback in that way when when you were just talking about indie films i think that there is like an uh like who gets to produce these films then the more and more we have people in positions like Forrest Whitaker out there to be able to produce films that we've never seen before I think the more we're going to get different types of filmmakers making like things like this which he made during the he wrote during the Obama years all right well the movie started to bother you uh, obviously for you know incredibly unequivocal thumbs up on this one Verilyn thank you so much for coming in to talk about it this was thank great thank you for having me anytime All right, before we go any further, Dana, I am sure that we have some business to attend to. Uh, What do you got? Yes, indeed, we do, Steve. First of all, tickets are still available for Slate Day, which is a live podcast experience that's going to be produced in connection with the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin. All of Slate's politically-minded shows, the Political Gab Fest, Trump Cast, Amicus, El Gab Fest, and The Gist, for a live discussion and unique opportunities to mingle with the hosts and other fans during their cocktail party. You can also purchase exclusive merchandise at a Slate Day pop-up store. Slate Day will happen at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin on Saturday, September 29th, in partnership with the Texas Tribune Festival. It's an intimate venue with limited seating, so go to slate.com slash live for tickets and more information. And I also wanted to briefly mention an event that I'm doing this weekend in New York at Irv's Bar in Prospect Lefferts Gardens in Brooklyn. It's at 2 p.m. on Sunday, and it's called Critical Drinking. This is going to be the third convocation of this event, and uh, so far it's been really great when we've done it. It's just different critics coming together, TV and film critics both, to drink custom beverages and chat with whoever arrives about various subjects, cultural and otherwise. Uh, It's been very irreverent, weird, and fun every time we've done it. And this time it will include... Myself, Emily Nussbaum, TV critic for The New Yorker, Alyssa Wilkinson, who's the film critic for Vox, uh, Aisha Harris, formerly of Slate, much missed, now working at The New York Times, and Sonia Soraya, who's a TV critic at Vanity Fair. So we're getting ready for a fun afternoon at Irv's. It starts at 2, supposedly goes till 3.30, but you can really just drop in whenever you like. And Irv's, because you might think the spelling is I-R-V, is actually E-R-V apostrophe S if you want to look up that address. In Slate Plus today, we are going to talk about our favorite comfort watch. We're talking about cultural things that we turn to when the world is bleak and we just want to suck our cultural thumbs. And I'm very curious to hear what you guys have to offer in that department. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support us. For $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other benefits. So if you would like to support the Culture Gab Fest, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Steve, on with the show. Succession is the new and suddenly very buzzy show from HBO. It's about a family-owned media empire going through a transitional phase from its patriarch founder, who in the opening episode turns 80, onto its heirs, presumably. We'll find out. Um, The show is created by Jesse Armstrong, he of the thick of it and the loop fame. We'll talk a bit more about that. I think it's fair to say that three families hover in the background of this Romana Clef, uh, the Murdochs, most obviously, for owning a media empire, the Redstones, who are in the midst of a succession crisis, and the less obviously, maybe not so less obviously, the Trumps. Anyway, uh, it's relevant, and the critics, by and large, love it. Uh, let's listen to a clip. Three years ago, you were still in the nut house. Rehab. Dad, it's called rehab, and I'm in recovery. It's all good. I'm just concerned you might be soft as yet. Soft? Are you kidding? I I, I did a fucking year in Shanghai. I hear you let the guy from the website trash talk you and you just let him come. It's not a website. And I was was being professional. I hear it played weak, conflict averse. I wasn't about to get into a fucking big dick competition, okay? I hear you bent for him. What? I what? I hear you bent for him. And he fucked you. Well, no, actually. You know, I know that you've read a lot of books about business management and this and that, but you know what? What? Sometimes it is a big dick competition. Ugh, he's uh, so mean. <laughs> I, I love we, we, we got to shout out the actors there. Okay, that was Brian Cox as the father. 
<laughs> Logan Roy mm-hmm. and Jeremy Strong as the kind of heir apparent. The, the is he the oldest son? The, old, the oldest. The oldest son, whose no, name is Kendall, Kendall Roy. Roy. No, Wait, really? There's, there's oh, the right, right. Son he's the from oldest. The previous marriage. Yes, yes. He's the oldest of the three siblings from the same parents. An yeah. Alan Ruck sighting. Uh, I know. Of course, from um, uh, Ferris Bueller. Backing up a little bit, Laura Bennett, you are a completist. You lapped it up. Um, I'm not sure I like this show. Uh, tell me why I'm wrong. Oh, my God. That is the most outrageous opinion you've ever had, Steve. I'm so excited to hear more. Yeah. Um, I loved this show so much, and my first question to both of you was going to be, did you love it as much as I assured you that you both would? Um, but... Uh, well, first of all, I feel like the fact that Jesse Armstrong, uh, who, as you said, also worked on The Thick of It uh, and In the Loop, the brilliant TV show, British TV show and movie, respectively, that satirized the inner workings of the British government, um, that connection feels very instructive to me. I happen to love both of those things. Uh, and obviously, I love Succession, too, in its kind of um, hyper-articulate vulgarity and the dark searing comedy, but also the way the series overall kind of uses portraiture to indict a massive system. Um, You know, it's a gripping character study of each of the Roy family members and several other people in their orbit, but it's also a towering indictment of like, you know, American capitalism and dynastic wealth more specifically. Uh, Like Logan is the Logan, who's the patriarch, is the closest to a true monster. And yet actually read an interview with Brian Cox, who, as you said, plays Logan, and Jesse Armstrong, who actually discussed that during the making of the show, um, they talked about whether Logan actually loves his kids, and the answer was yes, and they wanted Mm -hmm. that to be sort of communicated. And I'm not sure, you know, I I would say as heinous as he is, as a human and a father, there are enough moments when you glimpse, glimpse the enormous pressures on him and the stress of his own deterioration. So even though we've got all these kind of alternately monstrous and idiotic characters, there's a way in which the show avoids making any of them seem purely villainous because he keeps the laser beam of his critique focused mainly on the broader system they're all trapped in. But I think even, you know, less abstractly than that, the show is just so funny. But I have a question for you. Did you love it? by the end of the second episode. I absolutely did. It's interesting because I had read critiques saying that you have to wait till the end of the third episode before you get hooked, but the characters hooked me from episode one. I was Mm. totally on board. And I think, again, as I was saying, the humor is so key to the show's appeal, which is also, well, you know, the plot is, I love the way the plot is constantly in the key of high melodrama, but the dialogue and acting has this kind of restrained British wryness And so all this fine-boned observational humor overlaid on this broad and outrageous plot, like that combination is hard to pull off, and the show does it so well. Yeah, it's true. It is like Dallas and Dynasty pulled through the boutique TV keyhole. Dana? Oh, I just wanted to speak to the question of of when it becomes interesting or when it it, it hooks you in. I mean, I think from the beginning, it's funny, funny in the mode of the thick of it and in the loop. It has that kind of artistry of profanity, right? The dialogue is extreme, has tons and tons of foul language, but really, really artfully deployed. And uh, and just as a scathing satire of this hyper-wealthy family, it's interesting for the first two episodes or so. But I would agree that in episode three, and not because of any particular event that happens, but because of, you know, just getting to know these characters better and, and starting to enter into their world, you start to see it as a drama as well as a comedy. And I think a lot of the a lot of the critical writing about it focused on this question. It's hour long, like a drama on HBO, right? But it has that tone of Veep or the thick of it that's more like a half hour comedy. And I feel like it balances that really, really well and uses almost uses the comedy as a lure to bring you into this world where you suddenly find yourself caring about these absolutely despicable right. people. Mm. Totally. And and that to me happened in three. So I would say that if huh. people are watching it and finding themselves a little impatient, just try sticking with it through episode three and, and see what happens. We should also talk about Tom. I mean, the two breakup performances to me are Kieran Culkin as Roman Roy, who's this kind of smooth talking dunce who is in a position of power in the company, even though he very patently sort of does not deserve to be. And he's just in the way Kieran Culkin always is just so his like casualness and his he's just so sort of hilarious and casual and silver tongued and irresistible. His acting is just so good. But my favorite character was Tom, who plays Shiv Roy's uh, fiance. And his arc is 
one of the most hilarious and most tragic in the show. But the kind of tone of his performance, his mix of like exuberance and anxiety is just such a perfect fit for the role that requires him to kind of careen between comedy and tragedy. There's one there's an episode about a bachelor party in which he is so funny. You must hang on to get to that episode. At the very least. And we should say he played the oddly enough the patriarch in Howard's End. I cannot believe it is the same freaking actor. Right, Matthew McFadden. Ah, he's um, British. I just can't get over it. Yeah, I first remember yeah. seeing him in in MI5, that mm. um, that British spy show from maybe ten years ago or so, when he was in a different phase of his career. He was more like the broody, handsome leading man or something. Right. But he has aged incredibly well into character roles. And I agree. To me, it was a, it was a complete toss up between those two actors. As good as everyone is in this show, it was sort of like, who am I dying to see more in the next mm-hmm. scene? Karen right. Culkin or Matthew McFadden? And it's almost impossible to decide. Um, so I um, don't like this show, but um hooked on it and we'll watch it till the end. I'm, I finished the third episode. Uh, it's funny how thematically it's totally, I mean, it couldn't be more dissimilar to, uh, sorry to bother you, but thematically at the deepest level, it's kind of the same thesis, right? Which is that business success, self-interest demands separating out ourselves from our own humanity in a way. And yet, you know, you can't fully alienate yourself from your humanity. So how are you going to deal with the fact that you remain in search of belonging, intimacy and have a conscience, even as what you want is status, money and power? Uh, I mean, these are age old themes, especially in this country. But nonetheless, it's like they're at an acute phase in the culture and therefore in the popular culture. But what's specifically interesting about this one is that they're a family, right? So so every scene is going to involve how a family, a a nuclear unit uh, reacts, how a family constellation interacts with one another within this internal hermetic bubble of just being rivalrous siblings, uh, seeking out rivalrously the love of the patriarch, resenting the stepmother, uh, mourning the lost mothers, of which there are at least two, I think, prior to the current one. Um, uh, As those get bound up in a business empire which requires total ruthlessness and almost a, a pr- kind of perf- performative alienation of one's decency in order to achieve rhetorical dominance and therefore actual dominance over one's business rivals. So people are constantly psyching themselves up to tell someone else that they're a fucking piece of shit and they're going to fuck them over totally. And after I'm finished fucking you, I'm going to fuck your corpse. I mean, it's got this <laughs> maximalist rhetoric of of domination and humiliation. And I think it's brilliant the way that it's playing those two things off of one another, a sort of ordinary family drama and extraordinary set of circumstances um, that demand nastiness. Um, That said, I I will conclude this oration simply by saying that we're at the the end of what I think of as the long 1980s, um, and it's been an absolutely horrible period in American life. um, And I, I think as a culture, we're training ourselves not to care about the people who've benefited most from it because the solution will not include them. And there was a part of me that felt sucked back to the aughts, the pre-08 aughts, sucked back to the dot-com 90s, sucked back to the vulgar 80s. And and I'm not sure I want that, but I'm hooked and the writing is so good. And I'm going to watch every minute of it. Yeah, I'm just thinking it's about... It's a very high-minded objection, but I, <laughs> I admire well, it. Well, no, I think it's actually a low-minded one. It's totally visceral. It's like, I'm so fucking sick of eavesdropping on the rich and the powerful on TV. Like, that, it's it, it's resentful and childish as much as it is high-minded and like, you know, John Rawlsian or something. But don't you... I mean, there's one piece in The Ringer that was about this that was very good, but I really did feel like it is just... I so appreciated that it wasn't a carnival of conspicuous consumption in the way that many shows about very rich people are. You know, mm-hmm. you see a lot of very decadent New York apartments and domestic divers kind of quietly orbiting the characters and private aircrafts or whatever. But the show uh, and Tom has this one line where he says being rich is fucking great. It's like being a superhero, whatever, whatever. But this really is the rare show about eye popping wealth that makes money look poisonous and un- unappetizing. It just and it's sort of just v- 
straight up unpleasant to have. Like even this, this is an episode I don't think you guys have seen yet, but there's this fancy exclusive drug and sex party they go to that has to be accessed through this dank tunnel and looks creepy and sad. And I think back even to the big short from Adam McKay, who produced Succession and directed some of it, uh, and how even though that was a deeply unsettling economic horror story, it made being rich seem in its way like a glossy romp full of hot girls in hot t- in bubble baths. And in yeah. succession, this is really not the case. And it did feel unusual to me in that way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not entourage, right? It's not a show in which conspicuous consumption is set up as something to emulate or envy. And you immediately get that. I don't know exactly how it does it, but this show, to me, immediately differentiated itself from that world of let's envy the rich, reality TV. You know, it doesn't aspire to produce that set of emotions where you make fun of of people's greed and sort of pride yourself on not being as greedy. And in a strange way, even as a member of the 99%, I found myself identifying with these these characters. I felt like that combination of status-seeking, prestige-seeking, and kind of self-humiliation for capital is something that everyone in the system is subject to at whatever level. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think it gets something about the very rich, very right, which is that it's, you know, they do not conspicuously consume by and large in order to display to others. I mean, in fact, what they do is create recessive, quiet, semi-hushed private spaces and their world is regulated by sort of glances and clucks of the tongue more than snorts of cocaine, though there are plenty of snorts of cocaine um, among the second generation, I guess. But, um, you know, it's very smart about the social geography of the rich and the powerful. Yeah. to wit, early on, they're in a in a hospital, and the hospital is essentially a public or semi-public institution in which they simply must slot in as every other uh, entrant must, and that to them is just impossible to process. That they, that they actually have to negotiate the space and the bureaucracy of this semi-public space as any other ordinary human beings would, and the fact that they eventually get to bring their hyper privilege in and dominate it. Um, it's in that it's in that period where they can't where they're 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 kind of declassed and and the show is just extremely smart about it. Um, I, I mean, I I have to confess, I essentially love it. Uh, <laughs> wow, we nature. really brought you around. <laughs> well, I just have to just mention that the only critic we read in our our research for this piece who didn't like the Washington Post TV critic did not like the show, but even he said, "Okay, fine, I watched all of ten episodes." I know. Also, he missed kind of the humor of the show. I was Get very funny. I mean, the, <laughs> like the performances were just, it's an embarrassment of riches how many fucking great performances Ugh, were, know. you know, privy to uh, on TV these days. Okay. Succession, it's on HBO. Three, two, you know, ragingly upward pointed thumbs and one that's just right behind them, right there with them. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. Moving on. I could talk about this one forever. We assume when we meet a new person, they are who they say they are. But what does that really mean? That the name they give us is on their birth certificate, that the stories they tell us about their past are true. People are, in general, in their nature, trusting, and we assume a certain stability of identity over time. But as things fall apart, so does our notion of personal identity. Trusting and untrusting people have always existed side by side, presumably, and scamming is presumably as old as humanity. But is there something new in the air? We at the Gap Fest have noticed a trend, a series of articles about people not being who they said they were and taking the gullible for a ride. Is this a new era of sociopathy and grifting Dana? Or same old, same old. <laughs> is it a new era of it or is it a new era of reporters being interested in talking about it? I'm not sure. It could really just be an accidental trend, I suppose. But it seems to dovetail well enough with our national spirit at the moment that it seemed worth talking about. And plus, just the stories themselves are so riveting. I mean, I think part of why this is really not just a thing at the moment, but a kind of perennial story that reappears, right? The yeah, story of absolutely. some sort of con artist who who has a really long game and spends a very long time getting money out of the maximum number of people and somehow living far above their means for far too much time. And uh, why are those stories so interesting to us? I mean, maybe this goes back in a way to, you know, the succession discussion. Maybe these are stories of envy and resentment and that we wish we could be grifters ourselves. I'm not sure. Mm. But, uh, but I know the ones that have broken 
spoken this summer, most notably the one of Anna Delvey, the young woman who posed as a sociolite and managed to just live off high off the hog in Manhattan and various other luxury spots for a very long time before getting caught, was something that people couldn't stop talking and thinking and reading about. And maybe it's because because we envy them and because we want to know ourselves who to trust. Is it possible that we at this very moment are being grifted by someone in our own lives? Right. So for background, for you know our listeners who haven't really come across it, I think New York Magazine and Vanity Fair uh, have written articles about Anna Delvey, who passed herself off as a wealthy German heiress, hobnobbed with cafe society, ingratiated herself with, I guess you might call them the right people. Uh, but all along, all along the way, was borrowing tons of money and robbing Peter to pay, play Paul and kind of leveraging it up and leveraging it up until people figured out she wasn't who she was and she ended up on, on Rikers. Um, and then there are a bunch of others. There are... Um, the other Anna, anyone remember Anna March. Her name? Anna March. Yep. Right, who kind of did a literary-based grift, uh, and um, and then of course Elizabeth Holmes, uh, she of the um, uh, Theranos story. I mean, Laura is possibly one aspect of this might be a kind of awe at the High Wire Act and 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 sheer chutzpah, like how to what you know to what. Uh, to what unthinkable limits can sheer chutzpah be taken? But another aspect surely has to be these people can only succeed by telling us what a lot of people, maybe even all of us at a given moment, want to or need to hear. I mean, that essentially has to be their genius. In addition to just bald-faced lying, they have to choose the exact correct words that not only get us to believe who they say they are, but to open up our, our hearts and, more importantly, our wallets to them so they can build the grift. Right. I think of this term uh, confidence scam, which is this sort of longstanding, I don't know, it's a phrase that has referred to, you know, as f- long before even like the talented Mr. Ripley or whatever, the term confidence confidence scam existed in the culture. Back to and Melville really at means, least, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. So far. I just, uh, Ripley was the first one to come to mind. But I mean, I guess this, the, the, Short answer to Steve's earliest uh, proposition is I feel like <laughs> this is same old, same old. Basically, I think grafter stories are immortal and I resent any implication that our summer of grifter obsession is somehow an outgrowth of daddy issues related to our president because these stories have appealed for so long and will continue to, and continue to appeal for the rest of time. But um, what I was saying about the term confidence scam, which really means, as Steve was saying, gaining someone's confidence but I, it sounds like what it should also mean, which is defrauding people simply by virtue of your own airtight, unearned confidence. And that, to me, was part of what was so riveting about that Anna Delvey case, how this fraudulent kind of unmoored young woman who came over without her family was able to just stride mm-hmm. into these mil- into this milieu and just with no whiff of uh, fraudulence pretend to be somebody else. And I think, you know, in her case and in Anna March case, these grifters are so compelling, obviously, because of, you know, the suaveness of their deception, but also because of how they reveal the insecurities and the blind spots of the communities they effectively exploited. Um, You know, in Delvey's case, the artsy young trust fund set and the financiers who feed on them and the broader world of hotels and restaurants and, you know, private jet companies or whatever, this whole community in which people are so easily left starry-eyed by the presence of free-flowing money. And then in Anna March's case, the way she preyed on these small literary communities where she could seduce people by dropping the names like The New Yorker or Random House and, you know, offering mentorship and also obviously with money. There's something so riveting about how um, successfully these women saw the weaknesses in these communities and figure it out how to game them. And that is definitely part of the appeal for me. But what about the fact that they're all women? I mean, what do we make of the fact that there's this seems to be this wave of stories, if you include Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos, that there seems to be this wave of young, attractive women who manage to worm their way into the public imagination in this way? I know. That is definitely, that's, um, I mean, I would guess that's part of why the people are so fascinated by them, because there's this kind of, I mean, there's almost, I would say, like a sort of sexist 
uh, assumption that these women have kind of like a Bambi. There's like a Bambi quality to right. them. They're like Edie Sedgwick's or something. Exactly. They're and Anna Delvey in particular right. seems to be, I mean, she wasn't a stunning beauty. She was sort of more of a, a waif-like kind of figure. But she seems to have taken her relatively young age and her girlish appearance and her interest in fashion and getting manicures with the people she was trying, you know, or fancy massages right. with the people she was trying to grift. She seems to have taken that very far. Right. right. She, and the fact that in the New York piece, someone had to mention that she wasn't a stunning beauty shows you that that was kind of part of the shock that she was able to be so confident to be so persuasive like the fact that i just thought it was the fact that that was even mentioned was was striking to me well and the fact that a lot of the people that they were grifting were also women the vanity fair piece that steve mentioned is actually right. written from the point of view it's written by one of the women who mm-hmm. was swindled Oof, by anna that was riveting too. and uh, and it actually came out before the longer more reported piece where you saw the background of, of everything that was happening you just see this one somewhat blinkered point of view of this very gullible sounding young woman i really felt for her who was a photo editor at vanity fair and who essentially got conned by Anna Delvey into having this this girls on the run kind of fun lifestyle where they would go off to Marrakesh together and, you know, just just do all kinds of sort of girl stuff. And and that side of it to me also was very it really played out like an HBO show Mm -hmm. in and of itself. Right. It was a Mm -hmm. kind of fantasy of female empowerment that was predicated on just nothing but lies. I'm curious about what you both think about the Trump connection also. I mean, Gia Tolentino had this interesting piece in The New Yorker about how scamming has become the dominant logic in American life. I think that was her quote. And she connected the dots between a lot of these different pieces. I really enjoyed that. And I thought also of the recent QAnon conspiracy theory stuff where you see people so ravenous for signs that things are not what they seem, you know, that the appearance of chaos in the White House is really a long, elaborate grift. Um, mm-hmm. Right. But I... Again, while I liked that as a thought experiment, I just am skeptical of processing Anna Delvey and Anna March stories through that yeah. lens. But I'm curious what you guys think. Well, Laura, I would come at it from a slightly different angle, which is the, you know my hobby horse, which is the long 1980s, where we're clearly at the crisis phase. If we've been with if we if we're coming to the tail end of an era, it's the unraveling phase. It's the unmasking phase. And um, and to connect it up with the two previous seg- segments on the show, I mean, the question all three of our segments are asking is like, what's the relationship between your hunger for status, which some people posit as a more or less uh, constant in human nature, relative to your sense of your own humanity, right? And like, how much are you willing to compromise one for the sake of the other? I mean, the, the really curious thing about Sorry to Bother You is it really posits this as a dilemma because he he sees it from the other point of view. It's he's achieving success as a black man and then asked to reacquaint himself with his humanity and join in solidarity with a labor movement. And um, I think you know, scammer like both Trump and scammers are the are the at the limit of the possibility of how little your humanity abridges your ability to um, take other people for a ride. And it's I think there there's so many different vicarious thrills that stories like these deliver. Like, what's it like to get? taken up because of the way you look and the way you sound and the way you dress and the way you talk what's it like to be taken up in the world of cafe society where 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 there's so much money flowing around it's never entirely entirely clear who picked up the check and so you can kind of slipstream your way in end up paying for nothing for years at a time without anyone really noticing right that that's an amazing story like what's it like not to have the ordinary array of human emotions as they attach to some sense of yourself as an ethical actor in the world, right? What's it like essentially to be some degree of a sociopath? But what really hooks it in, I think, is this realization that all of us have made a version of this compromise over the last 30 or 40 years, that we're we're somewhere within this dialectic. And we're now seeing how the most extreme self-alienators um, are now currently in power. Like, I just don't see how that is in the background to this mini trend of fascinating stories about grifters. I think that is so beautifully put. I guess I just feel like uh, that is certainly the context for our for our think pieces about the summer of grift. I mean, for it's the reason why these stories have become, have, where so many critics have thought to sort of thread them together and reflect on them more broadly. But in a vacuum, I don't think that the appeal and the sort of the schadenfreude of, of Anna Delvey necessarily connects back to that, to sort of mm-hmm. this historical moment. I mean, yeah, you, you, you certainly couldn't look at it as, as causal, right? I mean, this isn't happening because a family of grifters is in power, but a family of grifters being in power is kind of the ultimate 
evolution of that trend, right? I mean, it, it's, right. maybe it, it matters more to us because we see how grave the consequences of great grifting skill can be. Mm. We'll link to two or three, maybe four or five of the uh, pieces that we read for this segment. Uh, the G- I agree, the Gia Tolentino piece is totally predictably is incredible. It's really good. Uh, and then come and tell us what you thought about all this at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse day na 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 What do you have? <laughs> nice, opera man. Beautiful. <laughs> so I have two this week, so I'll keep them short. The first one is actually a piece that we read in our research for the for the Grifters segment. It's by our own, Slate's own Jacob Weisberg, host of Trumpcast and head of the Slate group. And it's about how Trump's White House can be divided into grifters and grafters. If you great. listen to Trumpcast, you've probably heard it because he gave a version of it as sort of a an on-air editorial. Um, but it's a really, really wonderful piece. And after you've read it and sort of taken his quiz as to which Trump official is a grifter and which is a grafter, and you can see what the difference is in this in this piece, you will never stop applying that rubric to every new character that you hear about in this absurd unfolding drama of the Trump administration. So it's Trump's White House can be divided into grifters and grafters. It ran in Slate in May. That's number one. The second is something that I may have talked about before on the show. I may even have endorsed it, but when I endorsed it, I had not yet used it. And now that I know how wonderful it actually is, I'm re-endorsing Canopy with a, with a K. It's a streaming channel that is connected with libraries nationwide. And so if you have a library card in many cities, I'm not sure which cities it applies to, but it's many cities throughout the U.S., You can use that library card and the number on it, the barcode number, to connect with this streaming channel, which you can watch online. It also has a Roku channel. I would imagine that it also appears in, you know, other hosts for for streaming. And and it's incredible. It's this incredible backlog of uh, archival films, things that are difficult to find elsewhere. Some of them are kind of classic Hollywood movies, but some of them, for example, uh, I was looking for this World War One documentary, a British documentary about World War One that had some real footage from the the front. And for my research, I wanted to watch this documentary, but I thought this is going to be impossible to find. I probably have to go to some archive and ask for it. And then I started Googling around and realized it was on Canopy. Then I thought, oh, I'm sure signing up for Canopy is going to be some huge thing because it's you know connected with public libraries, so I'm going to have to fill out a thousand forms. I swear, within a minute and a half of signing up for this service, I was watching The Battle of the Somme, this documentary about World War One. It was so simple to use and just a beautifully designed interface with so much material that I feel like I've just scratched the surface and I can't wait to dive in deeper. So Canopy with a K, if you have a library card, see if it's connected. Oh, that's cool. Um, Laura Bennett. What do you have? All right. Uh, I've recently made my for- first foray into the uh, trend of escape rooms. And oh my God, I loved it so much. I'm so hooked. I want to do all the escape rooms forevermore. Was it at a um, birthday party or no, something? No, it was not a birthday party. <laughs> it was. Okay, so the specific escape room I will endorse, and I'm sorry for those of you who are not New York-based, because well, maybe you can you know, travel here with the specific intent of going to this escape room, but it's called, I believe, Brain Escape. That's with an X, Brain Escape. And uh, my husband and I did the prison room in particular, just the and two of you? That's not very many brains to put too. together. My, my sister did the three of us, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, well, first of all, it is such a ridiculous adventure. And if you are, like me, a sucker for both, you know, like crossword puzzles and well-curated atmosphere, it is basically both of those things combined. Like, I love puzzles and I love spooky amusement park rides with haunted vestibules or whatever. And Escape Room is kind of both. And it was just so much fun. And I also recommend escape rooms as a marital testing ground. If you can imagine two kind of type A, uh, fairly competitive human beings who are overconfident overconfident about their problem-solving abilities locked in a room with a timer and a logic puzzle. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but you, I'm sure you can imagine the historic battle of wills that played out each time we discovered a new clue. It is just a hilariously intense tactical negotiation who's very low stakes somehow feel very high in the moment and we walked out of there blinking into the light like what did we just say to each other but we both loved it so much and we want to do it again and I feel like we both it felt like uh therapy seems a little strong but it was certainly uh, you know maritally revealing and I think we both learned a lot about how to uh negotiate our personalities in a situation like that and next time we're like all right this here's how we're going to do it differently but we're really excited to to 
uh, hit the next escape room some weekend soon. The one time oh. I've done an escape room, it was at a birthday party with a bunch of 12-year-olds. Oh, and it was really fun. It was actually super fun, but but it was utterly, <laughs> utterly baffling. I was in there with three other adults and about six kids and everybody was applying their full brain power. And I swear if an employee had not come in and given us some hints, we would still be trapped in that room. <laughs> I'm so glad you're not. So this sounds like something uh, Julia, Dana, and Steve have to do with special oh. guest Laura Bennett. I just can't tell you how much I would love that either to be a special guest or to just uh, listen to you talk about it. Ah, fantastic. It's a date. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, yes. I don't want to oversell um, my skills as it's uh, escape rooms are very hard and actually math brained people fare better in those situations. But they are fun. Oh my, oh my! Can you imagine the three of us, Dana, in a fucking escape room? <laughs> I would searching, love to see Julia <laughs> searching room. for our math brain. <laughs> I would discover things about you and myself that I don't even want to discover. <laughs> um, all right. Well, this is a show by and for the math brainless. In case anyone hasn't been listening for ten years, but um, so the gift that keeps. Well, very quickly. First, I finished uh, in a lonely place the Dorothy Hughes pulp novel from the forties. I think maybe early fifties. Uh, it's it's a really cool book, but. Almost not cooler. I wouldn't go that far, but as cool is the afterward by Megan Abbott, um, herself an incredible cr- uh, crime writer. Uh, I mean, she just puts Dorothy Hughes in such stark, you know, uh, lucid uh, context and talks about why the book is uh, historically important. It's 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 just it's a great essay. Um, but uh, moving forward to this week's endorsement. Uh, there are certain bands or musicians who, when I hear their music, it is just get I get high on contact from it, just the sound of it somehow. And one of those is the um, Scottish band Camera Obscura, which I've endorsed in the past. But um, I kept noticing that there weren't new Camera Obscura records coming out. And I found out the reason, which is a band member had died and the band is on hiatus now. But for those of us who need the fix, the lead singer, Tracy Ann Campbell, and songwriter has an offshoot project called Tracy Ann and Danny. It's a side project with Danny Coughlin, um, a English uh, singer and songwriter, and it's really, really, really good. It's its own thing. It's not just more camera obscura under a different name, but it also gives you some of that same uh, uh, melancholy euphoria that that band delivers so, so beautifully. So check it out, Tracy Ann and Danny. It's really good, actually. It's a great record. Laura, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure as always. Yeah, it was great. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Stephen. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. As always, you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Drop us a note at our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash culturefest. We have a Twitter feed at Slate Cultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you soon. Thank you.